Hey, Jay, so how's Banshee been lately? Oh, oh, Miles, buddy. That bad, huh? Well, see, Moira McTaggart... Wait, he and Moira got back together? That's, uh, that's certainly one way to describe what happened. Which was... Uh, Moira dressing up in Banshee's flayed skin to get back onto Krakoa. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 392 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to even more Operation Zero Tolerance, which I don't say like it's a bad thing, you know? This is a nice, neat little event. Yes, it ties in basically all the X-Books, except for the ones where the X-Men are in space, but uh, it's concise. It's a few issues of each. Each of those stories stands alone, and I find myself really grateful for that after the sprawling mess that was Onslaught. I like how implicitly threatening that phrasing was, like, nice, neat little event you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> well, from what I can tell, so far not much bad has happened to it. I mean, bad things have happened to the X-Men, of course. That's like the entire point of this event. But by and large, Operation Zero Tolerance is decent. Like, it's not amazing the way something like Inferno was, but it's also not bad. It's not deeply flawed like uh, Onslaught was, for instance, in its second half. It's just a pretty okay crossover that justifies itself and then doesn't overstay its welcome. And it's a crossover that does a very good job with parallel threads in different books rather than requiring you to read the entire line for any sense of what's going on, which is a characteristic that I really, really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked last time about how uh, the Cable and X-Force plot lines move back and forth in such a way that it's a little confusing if you haven't read both books, but you still don't have to. And the fact that Jubilee shows up in other titles being captured by Bastion you know, that's fine. That's just a little window into what's going on in Gen X, and it's still not required. It's more of a little tease. Like, it's the sort of thing that would make you want to read another book, but not be required to. So, you mentioned Generation X, and that's what we're mostly going to be looking at today. Yes, indeed. So perhaps we should talk about what their deal is and what they've been up to. All right, so Generation X is the next, next generation of mutants, you know, the one after them, New Mutants. They go to the new Xavier School in Massachusetts, run by co-headmasters Banshee and Emma Frost, who are a former X-Man and a former villain, respectively. Now, the team has, as X-Teams tend to, had a rough time lately. So in Generation X-25, it turned out that their teammate Mondo was in fact a plant. <laughs> yeah. Um, both meetings of the term put in place by Banshee's evil cousin Black Tom Cassidy. The good guys did manage to beat Black Tom and Mondo, but in the chaos, most of the team's members were stranded in the middle of the ocean on a decaying floral raft. That roster included... Cannonball's kid sister Husk, who can rip off her skin to reveal different substances underneath. Skin, a teen from a rough part of L.A. who has lots of extra prehensile, well, skin. Sink, um, a dude who can synchronize with and mimic others' powers. Chamber, who blew a big hole in his chest and face when his energy powers first manifested. And M, a young woman who's functionally perfect. As superheroes go, she's strong and smart and can fly and is psychic, and Beast recently diagnosed her as autistic because of her inconsistent behavior, but she is, in fact, two preteens standing on each other's shoulders in a skin suit. 
They had some wacky reality-bending adventures on the high seas, but due to some nonsense have now been teleported to L.A. There's one member of Generation X still missing from that lineup, and that is Jubilee, formerly the youngest X-Man. She was kidnapped by a guy named Bastion during the chaos of Black Tom's attack. So if you've been listening to recent episodes, you know more than you would like about Bastion, but in case this is your first, Bastion is the apparently not-human leader of Operation Zero Tolerance, which itself is a quasi-governmental military organization that's been capturing and killing lots and lots of mutants, emboldened by the current surge of anti-mutant sentiment in the Marvel Universe. While imprisoned by OZT, Jubilee has effectively been a thorn in Bastion's side, and she's also befriended a woman named Daria, one of Bastion's assistants, who just found out that she, in fact, also has powers and thus isn't entirely human either. The beleaguered headmasters have been looking for their missing charges, but without much luck, so now they're trying to respond to a distressed call from the X-Men that they intercepted. Which brings us to Generation X number 29, No Surrender. This issue is written by James Robinson, penciled by Chris Pichello and Pop Mon, inked by Al Vey, Eric Cannon, Tim Townsend, and Al Milgram, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkingson Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So, James Robinson, we just saw him recently. He wrote that little bit of cable that we just covered. So the fact that he's now popping up all over the line kind of makes me wonder to what extent he may have been one of the architects of OZT. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, he showed up near the end of it for Gen X, at least. Uh, as far as Cable, he was relatively new on the book when OZT happened as well, so I suspect not too core to it, but who can say? What's interesting to me here is that the solicits for this issue uh, describe him as being known for Leave It to Chance. Do you remember Leave It to Chance, Jay? Uh, Leave It to Chance. That was that was the um, the kid's book he did with Paul Smith, right? Uh, it was, yeah. It's just strange to see him known for that instead of, like, Starman, which is certainly the thing I most know him for. Definitely, yeah. So James Robinson is just going to be on Gen X for three issues total. There's going to be a fill-in by Tom DeFalco after this arc, and then Larry Hama takes over for a while. You know, Larry Hama, the longtime writer of Wolverine that writes Logan as, like, an old-timey prospector guy. I hope that Generation X becomes full of old-timey prospector guys and or cowboys. Oh man, they're just all, like, using late 1800s turns of phrase and sounding like a cross between cowboys, gangsters, and people panning for gold. No, not the students. I hope cowboys just keep wandering through the comic. I mean, I would say that would happen because Chris Pacello does like drawing that sort of thing, but this is actually Chris Pacello's last arc on Generation X. He was the person who co-created the team along with Scott Lobdell. His art has consistently been the best thing about it for the issues where he's been here. And he is going out weird. Oh god, he really is. Like, Chris Pacello's style is a strange style, no doubt, but, you know, it looks like Chris Pacello's style for all of Gen X so far. And for his final arc on this book, he decided to really change it up. Like, everybody looks so much younger. Kind of like when Brett Blevins took over New Mutants before he dialed back the youth factor— uh, but it's a drastic shift from the last issue Bocello did to this one. My wife saw the art and described the characters as looking, I think, kind of like sexy Bratz dolls. Ouch. The thing is, it's not bad art. Like, it's per a perfectly serviceable style of cartooning. The characters are expressive, the action's very coherent, which is not something Bocello will always do in every phase of his, his artistic career. It's just so freaking different. It's different, and as you said, everyone looks really young and looks progressively younger over the course of the three issues we're looking at today. Yeah, that makes it even weirder. Like, there's a character, uh, Skin's cousin, we'll talk about him, and he starts off looking like he's maybe, what, 16 or something or like so, that? Yeah. 
And by the end, he looks like he's freaking eight. He's like a Moppet. He's like Franklin freaking Richards. His age does not actually change during this arc. This is this is purely something going on in the artwork. Yeah, so weird direction for this book to go. We have a fill-in writer who's pretty good. We have Chris Michello doing a very different style of art that is also pretty good, but it's just so disorienting. It really is. We open, in fact, with the team themselves also fairly disoriented, as Skin stands with a knife held to his throat by Miguela Torres. Yeah, Torres. We've seen her before. She's sort of a gang leader in L.A. She knew Skin, she thinks he's dead, and she's pretty pissed that it turned out he isn't and didn't tell her. It's heavily implied, too, that they have they have significant romantic history. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the narration, though, is a delight. Death this day is beautiful and smells of Chanel allure. Not that it makes the dying any easier. Yeah, that's that's the writer of Starman. All right, I I love it. James Robinson is really fun on this book. Like, I don't know if he would have been a good long long term writer for it, but he does a good job in this arc. He has most of the characters' voices down very very well. Yeah, yeah, I think he does. I, I remember we really liked his Caliban and those cable issues. Yeah. But let's talk, of course, about the art, because James Robinson is fine and dandy, but frickin' Chris Bicello, we go from there to this gigantic two-page spread from the day before, which is like this street in Venice Beach, crowded with so freaking many people of so many shapes and sizes and costumes. Like, I wrote down my favorites. There's a skateboarder flipping about 12 feet in the air. There are two dudes in green jumpsuits and gold chains and sunglasses, but like one is twice the size of the other. Princess Leia is there for some reason. There's a guy in a space suit on a super tall unicycle. There's a guy dressed as Spider-Man juggling knives and guns. Bicello's own version of Death from Sandman is there in the background. Admittedly, I've only been to Venice Beach twice, but this is fairly consistent with my memories of it. Huh. Huh, okay. Uh, well, anyway, it's wonderful. Uh, long-time listeners to this show will know that we really enjoy very eclectic, crowded crowd scenes. Like, Larry Stroman did great ones in X Factor, and Bicello certainly does here. For the same reasons, we will always be fans of the weird little background characters in X-Men the Animated Series. Oh, yes. Do you remember those two really grim-faced bikers that walked by like they were on a date holding a balloon at a carnival? I love them and wish them only the best. I hope they come back in X-Men 97. Me too. Yeah. Well, speaking of couples, I guess, uh, Chamber tries unsuccessfully to flirt with Husk. I mean, they do have a an awkward romantic history, but M distracts Husk with shopping. And M is the character that I kind of wondered about at first, like whether James Robinson actually got her voice, because normally she comes off as sort of distant and cold and arrogant and haughty. And the one here is just much more social and cheerful and young-seeming. Like, Skin even comments on her acting funny at one point, but still, it's just such a major distinction. And I don't know, we've seen M act erratic recently, as, you know, her dark secret has gotten closer and closer to the surface, but Jay, do you think this is too much? I think this is consistent with the way she acted in the previous issue of Generation X. I don't know that it's particularly consistent with the preceding material. Yeah, and I mean, we're certainly building up to the reveal of that big secret of why sometimes she spaces out, and sometimes she acts really young, and sometimes she acts really mature— 
But, you know, with a new writer already here, it sort of it sort of struck me. Um, it's fun, though. Like, seeing M and Husk just being teenage girls together is pretty great. There's this great page of the two of them trying on different sunglasses while complaining about men. And, like, it, with every pair of sunglasses, they're sort of acting the part. Like, at one point, Husk wears a John Lennon round sunglasses kind of look and flashes a peace sign at the, uh, the viewer and says peace. It's just silly and fun, and that's kind of what Gen X should be when it's not being very, very dark. So from Venice Beach, they head to Skin's cousin Gil's place. Yeah, there's a waterfront house, and I guess Gil lives here alone since his family jetted. It's kind of nice to see Skin hanging out with a family member and just being happy and teasing each other and being warm. Uh, because this is a house that's run by a teenager, they just all eat sugar bombs and drink Jolt Cola. Um, they're being ridiculous, like Emma's riding around on Sink's shoulders and singing while he pretends to surf on a surfboard inside. They definitely do act young. I don't know how much of that is just the art drawing that out, and how much of it is the fact that they're not freaking out and almost dying for the first time in ages. Did this ring true for you? Given what they've been through and the absolute weirdness of all of it, and the fact that they've just come to a safe place where the only provisions are sugary cereal and hyper-caffeinated soda, I, I feel like this works. Yeah. No, that's a good point, though. Like, Jolt Cola. I mean, d did you ever actually try Jolt Cola? I never did. I just knew it by its reputation back in the 90s. Same. Yeah, so listeners, if you're not familiar, it was like this hyper, hyper sugary caffeinated drink that was almost legendary among kids and teenagers for being this just like drive you completely bonkers off the wall hyperactivity juice. It was officially banned from the Drama League. Oh, man. I, I do not know precisely the circumstances that led to it, but I know that it was officially not allowed at or around any rehearsals or productions. I don't know. I mean, all the plays would have uh, been over so much quicker. Everyone would have been talking at double speed. It would have been great. Hey. That was that was the same year that, like, Surge showed up in the vending machines, though. Oh, yeah, Surge was a lot like Joel. I mean, the name is very similar. So I wonder if those were actually over-caffeinated that much, or if it was just urban legend, looking back. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, placebo effect is is very much a thing. Like, I've been reading all these articles recently, well, okay, skimming headlines, let's be real, about how, uh, you know, sugar highs and sugar crashes are not actually a thing for kids, that everyone just assumes they are. Yep. Huh. Then what's the kids' excuses? Freaking kids. Uh, being kids, mostly. Okay, I, I'll accept it. Anyway, that night, Husk meets Skin outside to sort of give him a pep talk as he's preparing to ask an old friend, who he doesn't know how it's going to go, for help. Chamber, who, like we said, has a crush on Husk and she has a crush on him, sees the two of them outside and assumes the worst. Alright, you know what they say about assumptions, Jono? They make an ass out of you and Mchen. It's true. It's definitely true. And Mchen has a knife. Oh, shit. Well, uh, spoiler, so does the friend that Skin is going to go meet, um, because the next day, that's where the issue started, with Skin, with a knife to his throat, held by Taurus. Turns out she's got him against the wall in more ways than one, because before he showed up, she was approached by Operation Zero Tolerance, about Generation X, and she called them as soon as he got in touch with her. Yep. God damn it, Taurus. You may have a really cool Age of Apocalypse-style tattoo over one eye, but, but don't be a dick. And in fact, a bunch of the men and women outside rip off their skins and clothing to reveal Prime Sentinels underneath. Yeah, that's really different than what we've seen before. Like, we know Prime Sentinels. In previous chapters, well, I guess parallel chapters of Operation Zero Tolerance, 
human beings can turn into them. Like they get the black and pink Operation Zero Tolerance outfits, and there's a little bit of circuitry around their face, and they're all buff and can shoot lasers. But ripping their skins off, like that's basically what Husk does, which is strange. The inconsistencies among the representations of Prime Sentinels between titles really interest me. You know, I don't mind it. I I enjoy the fact that Bacello draws them as these hulking monstrosities who are all absolutely identical, except for having different hairstyles. Like, one of them has a truly glorious mullet on top of his, like, mechanical, electronic circuitry head frame thing. No, I mean, I think the inconsistency is a good thing, and it implies to me a lot of story behind—I don't think it's deliberate, but it implies to me a lot of story behind the Prime Sentinels, you know, multiple generations and iterations of them. Yeah, some of them refer to themselves as Nimrod class, and Nimrod is certainly a sentinel we know. I mean, that's that's a big sentinel from the future that killed a lot of people who, it turns out, will be part of Bastion. But— I like the idea of Bastion having created these different generations. I totally agree. We don't get to see any of that. Still, I like these. I like that they all have different hairstyles. I hope that they all call each other that. You know, like, hey, Baldy. Hey, Hawk. Hey, Mullet. Stop calling me that. Man, you're the one who got it cut. I think Mullet's their leader. Look at that Mullet. It's amazing. It's the Mullet of leadership? It is the Mullet of leadership. It's like the conk you have to pass around to talk in lord of the flies but it doesn't come off so that person's the leader all the time and can talk all the time i was thinking like the matrix of leadership from transformers oh and how much better that would be if it were a mullet so if uh mullet the prime sentinel dies then you know like baldy the prime sentinel will just take the mullet of leadership off of mullet and then become like i don't know mullet baldy there's you just can't get as good a name as rodimus prime rodimus prime is the greatest name rodimus prime is a dildo name that's part of why it's the best name. Anyway, the Prime Sentinels, Mullet included, blow up the safe house, and they kill most of Taurus's gang. They're also about to kill Taurus because, turns out, she herself is also apparently a mutant. So so they, they all run off. We've got our five Generation X members, plus Gil, Taurus, and Taurus's only living goon. Oh, I feel bad for that goon. He's gonna have a lot of goon survivor's guilt. He is. He, he's been through a lot of goon trauma. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great, though, because as they're running through the streets, like, they just pass by all these random people. They pass this tiny skateboarding child with an ice cream cone and huge shoes and want him to run. And he just ollies over a laser blast and says they shouldn't sweat it because he's cool. He, he is correct. He, he is very cool. And there's this very slow, tiny old man grunting and snorting down the road. And, like, as the fiery chase passes him by, he just complains about kids these days. It is a very silly comic. So I am, like, 90% sure that the passers-by, maybe not the skateboard kid, but that the other three passers-by on that page are supposed to be cameos of somebody, but I have no clue who. Yeah, maybe, like, some of the writers or artists or editors. I don't know what most of these people look like. Well, and they're all bacelloed, which does not really help with seeing a resemblance. There is that. Uh, anyway, let's talk about some people who are a little less altered by Bicello's artistic turn. Let's talk about the Headmasters. Well, they may not be altered by Bicello's artistic turn, but they are in disguise. Oh, and it's great. Yeah, they're on a very rainy East Coast, looking around for leads on the X-Men. Emma's in a black wig and casual clothes, but frickin' Banshee, Jay. Banshee. Banshee is wearing a bow tie and big glasses and a big fake red beard. It's so good! Penance is with him, she's in a giant raincoat, but- It also uh, kind of looks like Banshee has grown a real mustache for this. I feel like he should. I, I know Banshee's had a goatee at various points, but never like a big bushy one. 
I I feel like I feel like he could he could definitely just like rock a mustache. I completely agree. I mean, he was a cop in the seventies. I know he had a ponytail then. See, a cop or is he an Interpol agent? Law enforcement of some sort. Yeah. Anyway, Emma's safe houses are like all being watched by Operation Zero Tolerance agents, so off they go to South Florida, where it's also raining torrentially, which as a former resident of South Florida, uh, I think we can each confirm is quite common. Yeah, it doesn't tend to rain for that long, though, at a stretch. That's true. Although, as we record this, there's another hurricane hitting Florida. Uh, sorry about that, Florida. Hoping this episode goes live. Uh, it turns out things were fine. This one is ideally somewhat less um, high-powered than the last one. And also on the upside, um, my parents' escaped cat has finally been found in his back indoors, which was not the case when the last one hit. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. I, I never got the update on that, so that's that's great news. Yeah, she's good. She was she was wandering around the neighborhood a lot and was living in, in a yard about a block or two away. Um and was not letting anyone approach her, but would, like, come out when called, and finally let my mom just pick her up and take her home. Good. I feel great about that. What I feel less great about is the tension between Emma and Banshee. They're bickering about whether it's safe to use the stove without drawing attention to poten- by potential watchers, and whether he's being paranoid or she's being naive. Well, it turns out maybe uh, Paranoia was correct because DOA shows up out of nowhere presenting an apple to Penance. Do you remember DOA, Jay? DOA is is Emplate's chauffeur, right? Yeah, he's this weird little, I don't know, zombie goblin-looking dude in a chauffeur's outfit. And um, yeah, he's here saying Emplate isn't here, but had left a creepy recording for them, which says that Emplate will help Banshee and Emma find the kids if they turn penance over to him. Because remember, Emplate was the villain from Gen X number one. We know that he is Emma's brother, and we know that he had penance captive for a long time as he was feeding on her mutant marrow. Whatever that means. You know, the, the marrow of a mutant. I wonder if the marrow has mutant powers. As opposed to marrow, a character showing up in an issue we'll be talking about later in this episode who does. Huh. This this sort of goes. I know it was genetic marrow, not mutant marrow. They're they're genetic marrow, which is and it's unclear whether it's like bone marrow or like somehow the marrow of their genes or something else entirely. Because people just like to append the word to genetic to everything. Well, all I can tell you is that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Thank you, Parasite Eve. <laughs> that brings us to Generation X number thirty. Some things hurt more than cars and girls. This is written by James Robinson, penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Al Vey and Eric Cannon, and colored by Marie Javins and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft and Emerson Miranda. So let's continue on with the adults for now. Emma is seriously, seriously considering Emplate's offer, or at least considering nominally agreeing to it, in order to get the information on the, where the rest of the kids are. Do you buy this from Emma? So I reacted weirdly to this. Initially, when I saw Emma being like, yeah, I'll totally give you penance in exchange for info about the other kids, I was actually mad at James Robinson for getting Emma so very wrong. Because Emma may be sort of cold, she may be a jerk a lot of the time, she may not care about a lot of people, but she is desperately protective of any of her students, always, 100% of the time. And so when she then telepathically contacted Banshee as they were having a fight and was like, dude, I'm just bluffing, just go with it, I 
gave James Robinson a great deal of that credit back and then over the line into actively enjoying what he did because he fooled me the same way he fooled Banshee. Except that Banshee, unlike you, did not buy Emma's claim that she was bluffing. And that bugs me because, dude, they've been working together for so long. Like, they may not be super close on every level, but they know each other. Banshee knows how Emma is about that sort of thing. And eventually she knocks him out and starts to go ahead with the deal. She telepathically zaps him so hard that his bow tie comes untied. Damn. That is some powerful telepathy right there. That is like some Phoenix-level shit, because bow ties? Them are powerful. So what's up with the kids that Emma's kind of willing to sell her soul to find? Well, they are heading through a sewer, which... God, I always feel so bad when fictional characters go through sewers, and they do it so often. Sewers and beefy-sized air ducts. But they're going there, through the sewer, that is, to get to Taurus's uncle's used car dealership. And I appreciate that all the kids immediately forget about the Sentinels because the cars are cool. Yeah, um, M, who is, is riding around on a moped yelling wee, stops to tell off Jono for being an ass to Paige because she and Angelo are being friendly. And Chamber responds, Are you sure you're 16? Sometimes you think like you're 46. Which she says she'll take as a compliment, and he says that he meant as one, and whether either of them is telling the truth remains ambiguous. But yeah, this was the line that kind of made me think that M seeming so young so much of the time was deliberate, was really just set up to show the contrast between her two different sides. I don't know that it's necessarily successful, but it at least makes her presentation seem off, which I guess helps. The general tone inside the car dealership is weird because there are totally still a ton of Sentinels outside. And eventually they realize they're going to have to deal with this. So as they prepare to face off what, whatever's next, um, Everett Sink, who James Robinson writes absolutely marvelously, uh, worries about all the stuff he's never done. He wants to learn to drive, visit Paris, meet Black Panther, find a girlfriend. And he's also never kissed a girl. He asks Monet if maybe just this once they can kiss. And she agrees, well, the one kiss, but if they don't die, it doesn't count. It's it's legitimately adorable. Like, yeah, it'll get a little weird when we find out M's actual deal, but man, I love these kids. And I agree, like, Sink is a hard character to get right. He comes off as very bland a lot of the time. And with Robinson, he doesn't. He's just this sort of earnest, good-hearted, slightly awkward kid. And speaking of good-hearted, slightly awkward kids, that brings us to Jubilee. So Jubilee is right now dealing with someone else's identity crisis. Um, her previous semi-guard, Daria, is absolutely freaking out. She has no idea why clouds of nanobugs have been flowing out of her, and she's apparently a machine. Jubilee manages to talk Daria down and get her powers under control. Are you there, God? It's me, Daria, and I've got robot bugs coming out of my parts. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me a little bit of the stuff with, um, with Molly in the original Runaways comics, when she's talking about, you know, the weird stuff that's happening with her body. And doesn't specify that it means she's gotten super strength. It's so adorable. And like the other members of the team are trying to be so sensitive thinking it's her first period. She's like, no, no, I can throw cars now. <laughs> that seems potentially much more useful. Right? So Daria, for her part, has a quiet identity crisis. And she eventually decides that it's not fair that Jubilee's imprisoned and Daria is running around free when neither of them is really human. So just, she decides that she's going to free Jubilee. And I love this. I love that it's Jubilee's kindness toward an enemy that ends up getting Jubilee out of here, ultimately. 
especially because it was that kindness that had her captured in the first place when she stayed behind to give CPR to one of the guards she almost killed a couple issues ago. Like, it's nice seeing that kind of kindness and compassion really come through and work out. That That's part of why I enjoy superheroes as a less of a power fantasy and more of a kindness fantasy. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a great way to put that. That brings us to the final Generation X issue that we're looking at today, Rites of Passage, Generation X number 31. Written by James Robinson, with art by Chris Pacello, colors by Digital Chameleon, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. Huh, I guess Chris Pacello inks his own work on his last issue. That's kind of cool. Let's go ahead and start with the kids this time, as those enormous cable levels of beefy Prime Sentinels smash their way through the wall of the old car warehouse. They're they're pouring in like a freaking grimacing wave of gigantic muscly pink and black. Like, one of their fingers is as big around as Skin's arm. Chris Pacello, I guess he just figured, hey, it's my last issue, fuck it. Proportions can just go right to hell, I'm gonna do what I want. Proportions are for realists. This is a superhero comic. <laughs> yup. Uh, thankfully, Taurus uses her mutant power for the first time and shracks a Prime Sentinel with some generic energy stuff. Uh, the Prime Sentinel describes it, but it doesn't really help. The female mutant designate exhibits the ability to harness psychic energy and direct it as a weapon. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a vague 90s energy power, all right. Yep. The rest of Generation X arrives as backup smashing through the ceiling. Okay, wait a minute. So the Prime Sentinels are smashing through the wall since X-Factor's not around. Gen X smashes through the ceiling. We just talked about cables smashing through floors. Is no surface going to be safe in Operation Zero Tolerance? Nope. <sighs> Poor buildings. You know, all of them. Things initially look good in the fight, but it turns out the Prime Sentinels, being, you know, robots that can communicate with robot stuff, have better teamwork than Gen X. And it's down to just M and Sync. And M tells Sync to synchronize with her powers of invulnerability. Now, they have never synced before, and it's important, it's an important point that they've never synced before, because as soon as they do, Everett knows M's secret. It kind of reminds me of when Gambit and Rogue kissed right before the Age of Apocalypse when they thought the world was ending, and Rogue absorbed Gambit's dark secret. So this, this secret is significantly less dark than Gambit's, as secrets go. It's weirder, though. We'll get to that. Because in the meantime, Gil, you remember Gil? Yeah, he looks like he's a very small child at this point. Which kind of makes what he does even better. It does. He blows up all the classic cars in this warehouse to cover the team's escape. And also to uh, cover the team in rubble. It's actually not a great plan. Like, things must have gotten pretty desperate for this to seem like a good idea. Yeah, so everyone's buried under rubble, and emergency workers pull Sink free first, and he uses his, his Sink scanning to, to find M, whom they unearth and discover as two unconscious, identical, tweenage girls. Yep, yeah, so here we go. That is indeed M's secret, as we have alluded to many, many times. Monet St. Croix is, in fact, two much younger twin girls sharing a body. Awkward. There's a really nice touch where we see M's torn-off X-logo belt buckle in the rubble where the girls were. Like, that really just visually kind of and metaphorically showcases uh, her inner truth being revealed. Like, the, the Gen X outfit being ripped apart. Yeah, they are, to Bacello's and everyone else's credit, fully dressed. Uh, yes, they are. I don't know how that works in terms of various mutant powers, but M's a strange enough character that I say we just go with it. 
you know, this is not a realistic story. It's not a realistic medium. And I am entirely down with decisions that involve not sexualizing children. I completely agree. I am excited that we have finally gotten to this reveal. This is Generation X number 30 freaking one. And this was in the works. This was being planned from the very start of the series. We've talked about Gen X being a slow burn book. That's a pretty damn slow burn. I mean, it's not Inferno, but... Except to the extent that everything is Inferno, but fair, fair. It's interesting to me, though, that a fill-in writer gets to do the reveal after Scott Lobdell has already left the book. Ha-ha. Yeah, I'm gonna go with ha-ha. I'm very curious to see what Larry Hama does with this, though, because I don't think I've read any of Larry Hama's run on Gen X, so I actually don't know how this reveal plays out, even though I know the nature of it. Likewise, and I am likewise very, very curious to see where that's going to go. In the meantime, though, Emma is still bargaining with M-Plate, and his head and face in this issue are so giant. He looks like one of those rat fink drawings with, like, the monsters and the rats with the giant, giant heads and tiny bodies in the muscle cars. You think he falls over really easily? Uh, I think he does fall over really easily. Maybe this is because he hasn't supped upon genetic marrow very much lately. And so problem one is that those freaky pale hands drag him into another dimension, as we've learned. And problem two is that his head just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until he's just like a Funko Pop. And then everybody rushes for him at the convention and nearly tramples each other. Is there an M-plate Funko Pop? Okay, I have too many Funko Pops, as we all do. Uh-uh, I do not have any. Oh, you are a, a rare human, Jay Edidin, as you uh, are in many ways. It's a state that I maintain zealously. Okay, but if there was an M-plate Funko Pop, would you break that purity? No. Oh, well, I'll get one and, and you can check it out when you come over. Okay. Okay, good. Anyway, Banshee wakes up and punches Emma out, and then he and Penance attack M-plate and force M-plate and DOA to teleport away. And he mentions that he wasn't about to fail the students the way he failed his daughter, Siren. And I like this. I like that we're continually leaning into his guilt over not being able to raise his daughter because he didn't know she existed, and Emma's guilt over losing her former students to a supervillain attack. Like, yeah, lean into that drama. Well, and the ways in which their guilt leads them to clash, as it does here. Emma is super upset and tells Banshee, Sean, don't go. Please. Really, I wasn't going to trade penance away. You must believe that. How can I, Em? Words come cheap to you, just like they do to villains I've met and fought in the past. And sometimes I forget you were a villain once, that you're still the white queen of the bleeding Hellfire Club. No, I've changed. Have you? Maybe I'm not sure anymore. The only thing I'm sure of is the kids are mine. Stay away from the school, Emma Frost. You're no longer welcome. Goodbye. Unfair, Sean. Yeah, this is part of Robinson's writing that doesn't ring true. I feel like Banshee should be acting a little bit more charitably toward Emma. Like, she's come through every single time since Gen X was founded. Like, come on, dude. I enjoy drama as much as the next guy, probably more. But be nice to your friend. Hug each other or something. You can, you can be less sad in the world. She has embraced the legacy of Charles Xavier up to the point of faking her own death, Sean. <laughs> right? So what's up with Jubilee? Well, Jubilee is flying away from Bastion's New Mexico compound on Daria's back. And I'm really disappointed by this. Oh, why? It's, it's good news. It's good news, but I really feel like they should both have been born away in, like, a cloud of robot bugs. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that the first time Darius powers manifest, it's like creepy robot mosquitoes or something. Like I was a little disappointed that once Pacello gets back into the art, it's just sort of a general cloud of technological nano something or other. Uh, Regardless, it is pretty fun because Daria is this bald teenage girl in a suit jacket and a miniskirt, just like flying with no seeming uh, reason to do so with Jubilee on her back. It's a very silly, sweet scene. It's, it's cartoony in a fun way. And Daria drops Jubilee off in, in um, a canyon and leads the Prime Sentinels chasing them away. Jubilee is grateful. I'll never be able to repay you, Daria. You're the bravest human-slash-sentinel-slash-freak-girl I've ever met. I love it. And as Jubilee wanders off into the gorge, heading back to civilization, she figures things were probably normal and boring for the team. I mean, after all, she wasn't there. How much trouble could they get into? Wah-wah. And that's actually the last we ever see of Daria. As far as I know, as far as the internet knows, I, I hope she got away. Likewise, the last that we ever see of Chris Pacello, at least on this book. Yeah, he'll have plenty more X projects in the future. Some will be better than others. His style goes through a number of phases, some of which we like much more than others. But that's it for Pacello on Generation X, the book that he co-founded and the book that he hugely elevated every time he did an issue, which was perhaps less often than would be ideal, but even so. So... That covers all of the Generation X that we're talking about today. Brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 346, The Story of the Year. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madrera and Rodney Ramos, inked by Tim Townsend, and colored by Steve Bucciolato, lettered by Comicraft. And oh, this story. Because remember, the X-Men who are normally in this book are busy being off in space. So instead... Instead, you might think that you'd get the X-Men on Earth, but oh no, no, this story is about someone else. Someone very close to our hearts. J. Jonah Jameson. I am so happy about this. I love J. Jonah Jameson X-Men stories, because X-Men is one of the few places where J. Jonah Jameson pretty consistently gets to be the good guy. He does. I think Scott Lobdell just really likes JJJ, and I also really like JJJ. Like, he's so antagonistic in Spider-Man, he's such a dick to Peter Parker all the time, but he's just like this towering beacon of ornery journalistic integrity when he's an X-Men. Also, he doesn't have an inside voice. No, no, zero percent. And he also doesn't have any patience for the bullshit that the TV is broadcasting about Operation Zero Tolerance and the X-Men. Because as you may recall, the news had twisted the situation to be the X-Men unprovokedly attacking government agents. As opposed to the government agents, or in this case Operation Zero Tolerance, taking the X-Men down hard out of nowhere. JJJ uses his utter lack of an inside voice to make it clear how he looks at the situation. I didn't become publisher of one of the nation's largest selling newspapers by reporting what I saw on TV. We're reporters! Which means it's up to the Daily Bugle to get the story. The real story, not what some idiot with makeup and blow-dried hair tells us is the story. It means we do the research, we separate the fact from fiction, we make blasted sure every word we print is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As far as his opinions towards superheroes and their persecution here... It's no secret that I'd be just as happy if every superpowered Yahoo in a mask and cake fell into an open volcano. But that's not what that lunatic bastion and his internationally endorsed zero tolerance is about. It's about witch hunts, scapegoating, violating civil rights. Most of all, it's about a reporter named Nick Banjavaris disappearing when he got too close with their, to their connection with Graydon Creed. Creed was a presidential candidate then. You may want to note that he's dead now, too. 
Something about Bastion and his holy crusade stinks like yesterday's garbage. They've gone this far, there's no reason to assume they'll stop now. JJJ is the best. I've probably mentioned this on the show before, and I'm sure a number of listeners are familiar, but in the PlayStation 4 and 5 Spider-Man games, JJJ is an angry fringe podcaster whose episodes occasionally just interrupt whatever the hell you're doing and go in the background as you're, like, punching goons or swinging around, and he's such a delightful bag of dicks. I want a game where he's playable. What would the mechanics even be for that? Like, how could you have rant mechanics that were that elaborate? It's a newsroom simulator. Okay, okay, I'm still interested about how this would work, but I'm excited to potentially be JJJ and use my hatred of basically everybody around me because they're all a bunch of incompetent doofuses to, like, you know, advance the causes of journalism. Your options are rant inspirationally, fire everyone, and demand pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> Press triangle to do the one, press square to do the next. I love it. One thing that interested me here is that as JJJ is doing his research, like calling around trying to get information, he talks to a senator who stonewalls him, who won't give him any information. And as JJJ slams the phone down, he says, that's it, next election, he's voting Republican. Which implies that JJJ is a Democrat in late 90s New York, and I don't know what politics were really like back then in New York. Does, Does that seem about right or no? I mean, he's a reasonably serious journalist, so yeah, he's a Democrat. Oh, there is that. Anyway, Peter Parker, you know, Spider-Man, is off to the CNN building to try to get a photo of Henry Peter Gyrick, one of the government agents who's involved in Operation Zero Tolerance. Spider-Man has concerns about the ethics of OZT. He, He feels like, you know, he has the option of passing, but a lot of mutants don't. It's not like I'm unfamiliar with being hounded and called a menace, but I can at least take off my mask and just be Peter Parker whenever I want. What do you do if you're born with wings? Or an optic blast that fires every time you open your eyes? If each time you went to the grocery store, you had to pray that nobody'd notice the peculiar shape down your back. So Peter doesn't trust OZT, and he decides he's going to suit up and follow Gyrick for a while. Which is lucky, because Callisto and Mero pop up from the sewers and attack Gyrick's car, and... Peter repeatedly prevents them from killing him. Okay, should we remind everyone who Callisto and Marrow are? Right, Callisto and Marrow are both Morlocks. Callisto specifically is the leader of the Morlocks, and Storm's on-again, off-again um, frenemy with possible benefits. And um, she's, she's very badass. She's got an eye patch. I believe she's got some degree of super strength. Or reflexes or senses. She's got one of those, like, generic physical power sets. Yeah, like, she's real good at stuff. Mm-hmm. And Marrow is so Marrow is a little bit time unstuck, um, chronologically. She was a very young Morlock kid named Sarah, who got pulled into another dimension by Mikhail Rasputin when he dragged the Morlocks away, grew up there very, very rapidly, and then came back as the leader of Gene Nation, a terrorist group that was bent on getting um general revenge for the Morlock Massacre. Yeah. And the Morlocks, of course, are one of the best examples of mutants who very much cannot pass as human. They're mutants who went underground to live in the sewers, again with the sewers, because if they were above, they would be too persecuted. And here they literally come up from below. I have no idea how two people, one of whom has generic, slightly better than physical average stats, and the other of whom can pull bones out of her body and throw them at people, manage to rip the entire street up and flip over Gyrick's car, but they do. 
I mean, what makes you think they don't have access to explosives? Maybe it's just regular old explosive. That That's a good point, yeah. But can we talk about Marrow's look? Yes, please. This is not the last time that Marrow is going to get prettified, but it's the first and I don't like it. Yeah, because every time we've seen Marrow previously, she is super monstrous looking. Like, she has bones just sticking out of her head, she's got sharp teeth and exaggerated features and long clawed fingers. She looks like a monster lady. She is scary, she is inhuman. And she's fucking awesome. And she is, yeah. And now she looks really different. Now she basically just looks like a pink woman with bone growths that are sort of strategically placed just to make her look cool and or sexy. She's got a few sticking out of her back at cool angles, like some kind of a cowl or cape even. She has some on her forearms and knees that look more like armor. She's got almost a bone corset under her breasts above her bare midriff. This is a very different, very sudden shift. Yeah, I don't like this. This is, this is I think symptomatic of the general need in superhero comics to make every female character conventionally, physically, and sexually attractive under all circumstances. Which I've talked about before, I've ranted about before, at exhaustive and probably boring length, and which I find no more pleasant here than I did then. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a cool design. Like, this is the design that Mara will have in the Marvel vs. Capcom fighting games that she'll be in, and it looks rad. But hell of a shift. I have heard rumors that part of why Amara was redesigned so drastically was that everybody knew she was going to join the X-Men pretty soon, which she will. And I guess maybe the thought was that a really monstrous, ugly character wouldn't be appealing to fans. But, you know, you could maybe tone the monstrousness down a little without completely redesigning her this way. And they'll do it again later. Like, Later in X-Men number 90, Alan Davis will draw a further transformation where she becomes much, much more conventionally attractive and, like, becomes nicer because of it, thus implying that it was her ugliness that made her so murdery. This whole thing, this whole thing is a mess. I do not like this whole thing. I like Marrow as a character, but goddammit. And this is much later going to be an entire plotline around the whole Neverland um, concentration camp. Yeah, in the Weapon X book. Mm -hmm. And it's not good there either. Boo. Boo for all of this. Let Marrow be a monster lady. You know, she was pretty monstrous in Cy Spurrier's X-Force run. She was, which is, I think, one of the better versions of her that we've seen recently. Mm-hmm. Now, Marrow is there to kill Henry Peter Gyrick, and Spider-Man stops her repeatedly, but she is not the only one eager to do some killing, because Gyrick's Prime Sentinel bodyguards are all about that, and Callisto, in fact, decides she's seen too much death and throws herself in front of a blast meant for Marrow. And this part, this is where it gets interesting to me, because Gyrick's first response to this is to check if she's still alive, and then when she is, say, we need to get her up to a hospital right away. Yeah, that's the thing with Henry Peter Gyrick. Like, he's a jerk, he's typically very much an obstacle for superheroes, especially mutants, but he's not, like, an evil person. I mean, not most of the time, anyway. He also had no idea that his bodyguards were prime sentinels, and, um... They were supposed to be un undercover, they realize they've blown it, and they decide that the thing to do is to kill everyone on site, including Henry Peter Gyrick. Yep. Now what's also interesting is that these two Prime Sentinels, Boyd and Mathers, these were Graydon Creed's bodyguards, Graydon Creed, the assassinated presidential candidate. There's a bit of a tease here that maybe they were kind of involved in his assassination, that, I don't know, maybe Bastion even had uh, intended to have them kill Creed to stoke the fires of anti-mutant hatred. That ends up not going anywhere. So 
ultimately, Gyrick and a couple random cops save everyone by shooting the Sentinels with guns. That's it. That's all it takes to take them out. Guns save the day. I mean, to be fair, they do say the Sentinels will probably be back up in a second, but, um, yep, guns save the day. So Spider-Man and Marrow have a brief heart-to-heart, and Spider-Man keeps Henry Peter Gyrick from arresting or shooting her. But... None of this is, as far as I'm concerned, the important part of the issue. The important part of the issue is what happens at the Daily Bugle office, where Bastion shows up at J. Jonah Jameson's office, offering him a deal, along with a CD-ROM full of everything he's managed to decrypt so far regarding the X-Men and their known associates. And all that J. Jonah Jameson has to do is print it. And JJJ is not impressed, because... He's been digging into Bastion ever since Bastion first tried to threaten him into not covering the Graydon Creed campaign, and he's found absolutely nothing about this guy. Which is, of course, suspicious as all hell. JJJ's take. I've been a reporter most of my life, Bastion. My gut tells me that you are the story. And he burns the CD. I mean, he sets it on fire. He, he doesn't write data to it. Uh, I feel like we should disambiguate. Yes. Yeah, he, he literally sets it on fire. So, yeah, we get to see Spider-Man interacting with Marrow, a really fun villain. We get to see JJJ being in full righteous indignation mode. Like, this is a single-issue story that's only kind of part of Operation Zero Tolerance. It's an interlude in a book mostly concerned with characters in space, and I found it delightful. Likewise, very, very much. Also delightful are our listeners, and you've got questions. Merely Matt asks on Tumblr, Did you ever play X-Men Next Dimension or any other fighting game featuring the X-Men? If so, who was your go-to character, and which characters did you wish you could play as? So, I love video games. They're probably my, my primary hobby aside from, uh, from comics. But I'm not very good at fighting games. Um, that said, I would occasionally play the Marvel ones in arcades, back when, you know, arcades were a thing when I was a kid. Um, And in fact, our producer Matt Hunter and I were a while back on an episode of the Play Comics podcast, which um, talks about video games based on comics. It's hosted by Chris Osborne, who's awesome. We'll link to that in the Visual Companion. Yeah, and in that game and the uh, other Capcom ones with X-Men characters, I always freaking loved Iceman. Part of that is because when I was a kid, I grew up watching Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, that old, terrible, wonderful 70s cartoon, which I guess has like a little kid's version now. I don't know much about that one. Um, But anyway... Iceman has this, like, giant ice ball punch, and he's got this sort of laser-like ice beam he shoots, and everything just felt so viscerally satisfying, like, every single one of his moves. I don't know. I just loved Iceman in that. As a rule, if in, in X-Men games, if Cyclops is playable, I play Cyclops. That's legit. And as I recall, in most of those games, he's sort of like the Ryu equivalent from Street Fighter. Like, he has the most straightforward moves, and he's just all about, you know, being precise with those moves. Which I also appreciate, because I am not good at fighting games. I am also not good at fighting games. We, on this podcast, are not good at fighting games. Objectively, though, the Raddus characters, at least in Children of the Atom, that game that I probably know best, um, were Spiral. I can't believe they chose Spiral as one of their not very many characters for that game, but she's so good for a fighting game. Like, with the swords and the teleporting and the way she moves. Oh, she was so cool looking. And then you could be, like, a Sentinel as just one of the regular characters. And the Sentinel was kind of bigger than the screen. Like, the Sentinel was a little crouched down just to fit in the screen at all. I love it when games do that, fighting games uh, especially, where characters aren't just carbon copies of each other with different moves, where they can be genuinely really different. I like the idea of it having been a full-size sentinel and, like, you only see its feet on the screen. (laughs) Like freaking Nanny from the Muppet Babies. Yeah, yeah. 
As far as who I wish I could play as, so here's the thing. I had a big list of that, but every time I thought of an answer, I would look it up and it turned out that character was already in like just some Marvel fighting game that I never played because there are a million apparently. Um, so I'm just going to go with the character I know was never in an X-Men fighting game, which is Husk, you know, from Generation X, the book we just talked a lot about. Maybe she could, I don't know, like rip off her skin and there would be different substances underneath depending on like what button combination you used. And each version of Husk would have different moves like it was freaking the Pokemon trainer or Zelda slash Sheik from Smash Brothers. That would be cool. So that's my answer. I was thinking about this and I was going to say Cypher just to be an asshole. But um, my answer is actually Warlock. I think Warlock would be a really fun fighting game character. Oh, yeah. With all the shape shifting and stuff. Well, and the, his intense cartooniness. Yeah, yeah, that would be really fun, especially contrasted with something like freaking Cable or somebody. Dante the Canine asks on Twitter, If Xavier is an assimilationist, pre-Krakoa, and Magneto is a separatist, then where do the other major mutant leaders like Cable or Mystique fall on the spectrum? So I think Mystique is kind of chaotic neutral. Her politics have a lot less to do with principle than with what's expedient for her personally. Cable is complicated. I'd say he's probably closer to Xavier, but less assimilation than peaceful coexistence-oriented. Uh, I'm trying to think of other folks who qualify as, you know, mutant leaders. Emma Frost is pretty much Magneto, a Magneto school separatist. What about Haven? Because remember, for a while, Haven in X-Factor was being set up as the sort of third pole to Xavier and Magneto, even if that didn't end up going anywhere. I mean, that didn't end up going anywhere. True, true. Yeah, she was just so very New Agey and, like, philosophically based and also kind of apocalypse doctrine-y. Like, she was almost just a fringe religious perspective on politics. Yeah, I mean, and I would say that the same is, is functionally true of Apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Although Apocalypse's plans and perspective definitely change a lot depending on what era of X-Men you're reading. That's true, and especially in light of, of the most recent revelations about him. Yeah, shit's complicated. Shit's always complicated. I was gonna say, and we have a job. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, kind of, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Larry Hama prepares to jump over to Generation X and wraps up his run on Wolverine. As the X-Men face Operation Zero Tolerance. (laughs) 